I thought seriously, as Tim alluded to briefly just a minute ago, about asking you as we prepared to read the passage for this morning to take your shoes off. Because you know, at the beginning of Exodus 3, we're told an 80-year-old Moses encounters a bush that is on fire, but that is not being consumed by that fire. And a voice speaks to him from the bush and says, Moses, take off your sandals. For the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. When we read these verses in just a moment, we will be standing, rest assured, on holy ground. God stunningly called this 80-year-old man to lead his people, the Jewish people, out of slavery in Egypt into the freedom of the promised land. Moses hesitated, but God was absolutely insistent that he had his man. And so we pick up in the middle of the conversation between Moses and God, where Moses poses a question to the Lord. Exodus 3, beginning in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. The congregation of the historic New Park Street Church in London that Sunday, January the 7th, 1855, was anxious to hear how their brand-new 19-year-old pastor would begin his preaching ministry among them. And so that 19-year-old rose to the pulpit and began his sermon on Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, with these words. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true 
that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, that is our three-in-one God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. I think that 19-year-old, Charles Spurgeon, who would go on to become the most influential preacher in all of Britain in the second half of the 19th century, I think Charles Spurgeon was certainly right. That the best way that you and I can use these brains that God gave us is to contemplate, to think about, to ponder the God who created us, the God who redeemed us, the God who is infinitely interesting. And that's what we're going to do from Exodus 3, verses 13 to 15 this morning. Together, with God's help, we will ponder, we will cogitate upon, we will think seriously about the God who created all things. Moses asks God, when I go to the people of Israel and say, you're the one who has sent me to lead you out of slavery, what should I tell them your name is? Now in Moses' world and in the biblical world in general, Moses was asking more than simply just, how should we call you? In their world, the term name stood for a person's character, stood for a person's being. So when Moses asks here, what is your name? He's asking God, what are you like? You remember in the third commandment, God says, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In that commandment, God is saying much more than just, don't use my name as a swear word, though he's certainly saying that. He's saying, honor my character, honor my being with the way that you live. In the same way, when Jesus Christ, in John 14 through 16, instructs us, his disciples, to pray in his name, Jesus did not mean simply that we should tack his name on at the end of our prayers, though that's a very good reminder. 
Jesus meant that we should pray according to all that he stands for, according to his character. So when Moses asked God, what is your name? He's asking more than simply, how should we call you? He's saying, God, tell me what you're like. Now God's answer admittedly is a little bit difficult grammatically. Let's start at the end in verse 15. The name that God instructs Moses to use for him is the Lord. You'll notice in your English Bible in verse 15 that the name Lord is printed in capital letters. That's to signal to you that it's the English translation of a Hebrew term that probably sounds something like Yahweh. And the name Yahweh is a shortened form, or at least it's built on the two descriptions that God gives of himself in verse 14. I am who I am, and simply, I am. So God is saying, in summary to Moses, call me Yahweh. But that name, Moses, means that my character, my being, is simply, I am who I am. From all eternity, Moses, I simply and absolutely and eternally am. Now I want to suggest to you this morning four characteristics of God that are seen in this name Yahweh, the shortened form of I am who I am. And in God's providence and Tim's good planning, we've actually sung about all these character traits of God this morning. So four character traits of God, and then quickly three applications of those four character traits. Number one, when God said to Moses, I am who I am, he was saying to Moses, I am uncreated. I was never brought into being. I simply and eternally always have been. Now those of us who are parents know that either the time has already happened or it will come. When one of our children will come to us and say, Mommy, Daddy, who made God? And we will answer, honey, nobody made God. He simply always has been. Everything in the universe except God has a cause.
You have a cause. Your parents caused you. They have a cause. Their parents caused them. Your grandparents have a cause. Their parents caused them. And so forth and so on. But as the philosophers like to say, there cannot be an infinite regression of causes. There has to be a first cause of all things who is himself uncaused. And so God is saying to Moses, Moses, I am that uncaused cause. As we sung earlier, I am the great uncreated one, simply and eternally, always has been. Second, when God said to Moses, I am who I am, God was communicating to the future Israelite leader that he, God, is independent, which means he needs nothing outside of himself to maintain his being or for his happiness. The Apostle Paul put it this way concerning God's independence when he preached to the philosophers in Athens, Greece, as recorded in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see Paul's logic, don't you? Since God is the creator of all things, God cannot need anything from his creation. Now, two implications at least flow from God's independence. One is this. When we see God's many commands in Scripture that we, his people, should praise him, that we should worship him as we've been doing together by his grace this morning. When we see those commands, we should not understand that God gives us those commands because of some lack in him. That somehow we're encouraging God because he may not feel quite right about himself today. No. God, feel, God for all eternity feels just fine about himself. And God is the one being in the universe for whom it is right and good and just that he would eternally feel just fine about himself. Now, to be sure, God does delight in our praise. When you sang praise to God this morning, God in heaven and God who also dwells in this place was pleased and took delight in your worship. But God did not need that worship to feel better for, about himself or because of some lack. He commands that we worship him for our good because he knows, and didn't you experience, haven't you experienced it this morning? That it is when we praise him 
that it is when we worship Him that we draw close to Him by His grace, and He also draws close to us by His grace. And in that experience of the presence of God, a delight begins to well up in our souls in the beauty and in the excellence and in the worth of God. God is independent, but he's not like me. If I have an important project to do, I want it to be done right. Right, in my mind, means my way. And so, generally speaking, I'll simply do it all by myself. May I help you? No, I'll be fine. I don't need any help. God's not like this. God commands that we serve him. God gives us the grace so that we're able to serve him. God takes delight in our service to him. God even rewards our service to him. The God who needs nothing outside of himself mercifully condescends to use you and me in all our limitations every single day. Number three, when God said to Moses, my name is, my character is, I am who I am, he of course was saying, I am eternal. I'm without end and without beginning. You and I are eternal in one direction, in the sense that we will spend all eternity future either in heaven or in hell. But God is also eternal in the past. The Moses who encountered God in Exodus chapter 3 is also the human author of Psalm 90, verse, Psalm 90. And listen to what Moses wrote in verse 2 of Psalm 90. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you had ever formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The church has always loved to say, very simply, there was never a time when he was not. Some years ago, I was teaching a group of fifth graders the great doctrines of the church. And we came to the eternity of God, and I was doing my best with God's help to explain it to them. And a little girl named Hannah lifted up her hand and asked me, Pastor Steve, she asked, are you saying that God just sort of showed up at some time? And I said, no, Hannah, God didn't ever show up. God simply always has been. And Hannah grabbed her head like this, and she said, oh, Pastor Steve, my head hurts.
When you and I think about God, we are the finite, doing our best with his help to try to understand the infinite. And if there are times that our heads hurt in thinking about God, that's probably actually a really good sign. I want to commend to you something that the 11th century church leader Anselm of Canterbury said about God. Anselm said, God is that being of whom nothing greater can be thought. Which means that when you and I have had our highest and greatest and best and most glorious thoughts of God, we need to remember that the reality is infinitely higher than even our greatest thoughts of God. God's eternity or God's eternality means that he will always be present to keep his promises. I could say to you, I'll take you to the air and water show after church is over. But if God were pleased, he could take my life before the end of this service. And I would not be able to keep my promise because I wouldn't be present in this world to do so. God will never not be present. When Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age, Jesus meant it because Jesus will always be around to be there for you and me, eternal in his being from everlasting to everlasting. Fourth and finally, when God said to Moses, I am who I am, he was seeking to communicate to Moses his changelessness. That is, God is not becoming anything. He did not say, I will become who I will become. He said, I am who I am. In formal theology, we say that God does not change in his will or his being or his perfections, though within time, he responds perfectly to changing circumstances in our lives. James 1.17 says, there is no variation in God. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not like a mere human being that he would change. Again, it does not mean God is static at all, but it means that he is unchanging in his will and being and perfections. And that's really good news for at least two reasons. One is, if by God's grace you're here today, and you call yourself and know yourself to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, thanks be to God, he's never going to change his mind about you. Ephesians 1 said he chose you in Christ before the beginning of the world. 
and the day is not going to come when you're going to do something, and he says, that's it. I'm done with Pastor Steve. He's not my child anymore. God will never change his mind about you. He set his infinite love individually, particularly on each and every child of God before the beginning of the world. And he will never change in loving you with that steadfast love. And then second, it's good news because if you think about it, since God is infinite in every perfection, if he were to change, he could only get worse. I think as I get older, I'm getting better as a basketball coach. I coach girls basketball at the school where I teach. But I know that I'm getting worse as a basketball player. I'm changing. If God were to change, there's no better that he can be. He could only be worse. And so his unchanging nature means that for all eternity, he will be infinite in every perfection. Three applications of these four character traits of God, uncreated, independent, eternal, and unchanging that flow from his being, I am who I am. Number one, Jesus Christ is this I am. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is one with the I am. He is I am come in human flesh. In John 8, Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders were having yet another interchange. And the discussion turned to Abraham, who lived about 2,000 years before Jesus. And Jesus said in the course of that discussion with the religious leaders about Abraham, before Abraham was, I am. And we read that the Jewish religious leaders picked up stones to stone Jesus to death. Because in their world, they knew exactly what Jesus was doing. It wasn't bad grammar. Jesus was saying, I am this God who revealed himself to Moses. This is our Christian Trinitarian philosophy that God has eternally subsisted in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God. God one in essence or substance, three in person. And that second person of the one God came to earth, became a human being. And in order to make clear that he was no mere human being, he said to those Jewish religious leaders before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up the stones 
because blasphemy under the Old Testament law was punishable by stoning to death. But Jesus wasn't blaspheming. Everything that he had said and everything that he had done vindicated his claim to be one with the I am. As C.S. Lewis so famously put it in his book, Mere Christianity, then comes the real shock. Among the Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he has always existed. He says he is coming to judge the world at the end of time. Now let us get this clear. Among pantheists like the Indians, anyone might say that he was a part of God or one with God. There would be nothing very odd about that. But this man, since he was a Jew, could not mean that kind of God. God, in their language, meant the being outside the world, who had made it and was infinitely different from everything else. And when you have grasped that, you will see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. What if you had been there? And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. I am that God who appeared to Abraham in the burning bush. I have always been, I always will be. One implication is our second application, which is this, that only this God, uncreated, independent, eternal, unchanging, has the power to save sinful human beings. Only this God has that power. You see, the fundamental problem that you and I have as human beings is that we are conceived in our mother's wombs as sinners who sin. And before a God who is holy, 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 our sin brings us under his just, eternal condemnation. But thanks be to God, in his mercy, he came in the person of Jesus Christ, lived the life without sin we cannot live. And at the end of that life, died on a lonely cross to suffer the just judgment of God against the sins of sinners. And then on the third day after his crucifixion, he rose from the dead so that he is now alive to give grace and to bring to salvation all who will simply receive his grace that they might put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone to save them from sin and give them eternal life. If you are here today and you know that you are apart from this Jesus, 
May I plead with you to love your own soul enough to plead with Jesus, Jesus, give me the grace to trust in you alone to save me from my sins and to give me eternal life. If you make that your prayer today, and by God's grace, your heart means it, that God has the power to save you. He is uncreated. He is independent. He is eternal. He is unchanging. He has all power in the universe. God can save sinners. Jonah said from the belly of the great fish, salvation belongs to the Lord. If you're apart from Christ, look to the Lord to whom alone salvation belongs. He is indeed mighty to save sinners. And then third and finally, because God is uncreated, independent, eternal, unchanging, he has a spiritual beauty, a worth, an excellence. The Bible usually calls it a glory, which is the one thing in the universe which is able to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. I said earlier, God is infinitely interesting. I love sports, but sports are not infinitely interesting. If you're a believer, you will spend eternity enjoying God, and you will never be bored, ever. And you will never stop learning new things about God for all eternity. Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in our hearts in the sense that there's an empty place in our souls we're seeking to satisfy. But only God can do it. Probably the greatest Christian leader between the time of the apostles in the first century and Martin Luther in the 16th century was Augustine of Hippo who lived in the late 300s and early 400s AD. As a young man, Augustine sought pleasure, sought to fill that empty place in his heart with sexual immorality, with partying and all sorts of earthly pleasures, through seeking philosophies of all kinds, moving from philosophy to philosophy, and all of it was empty until he came under the influence of a great preacher named Ambrose of Milan. And under the power of that preaching, and more specifically, under the power of the Word of God, Augustine was radically converted. And he would write in his autobiography called The Confessions that famous line, 
God, our hearts are restless. God, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You've been seeking, I've been seeking all sorts of things to find delight, to find pleasure, to find satisfaction. God is the end of your quest. Psalm 1611, David wrote, God, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Have you ever known fullness of joy? In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Have you ever known pleasure that did not end? The only full pleasure, the only unending pleasure in the universe is found in the God who is simply and eternally I am. By His grace, seek Him with all your heart. Let's pray. Father, give us hearts because our hearts are so distracted in this world. We need you to give us hearts, God, that have a laser focus on you for the infinite welfare of our own souls. But God, it is also true that when we most delight in you, your glory is most clearly seen to the people who are around us. Grant, God, that we might be like David in Psalm 16 and 11, finding that in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand our pleasures forevermore, we pray. In Jesus' name and for your glory, amen.